Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. What did we watch? We watched the FBI story, a 1959 movie starring Jimmy Stewart and directed by Mervyn Leroy and based on the classic book by Don Whitehead, which may not be all that classic. And the movie was produced under the supervision of J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. So, you know, it's got to be good. 
<laughs> so did we just watch two, five, six, whoever knows how long hours of just straight up propaganda, basically? We watched about 12 hours <laughs> straight of propaganda all about how wonderful the FBI is and how dedicated their agents are. And also, you know, frankly, they told us the definition of murder. The, this this movie was about the life of an FBI man, a G-man, if you will, but it felt like it lasted a lifetime for us viewers as well. <laughs> I feel like I lived, got married, had kids, died, got reborn, like several, this movie goes on forever is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Isn't it like two and a half hours? It's two and a half hours. It's two and a half hours. It's two and a half hours, and I just feel like J. Edgar Hoover you know, uh, the the father of the FBI in many ways just created this weird little grocery list of all the things he wanted in a movie that he would sign off on. And they just gave him everything he wanted, like a spoiled child on Christmas morning. And that was not to the betterment of this film, as you could imagine. <laughs> I want a plane bomb. Then I want a bank robbery. Then I want a dead guy. Then I want a dead guy's kid. Da -da 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 -da. Anyways, I'm already getting crazy. Well, you know, it, it, and in fairness, the way you've just described it, a movie with a, pl a plane bomb and a bank robbery, that sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, everyone's mouth's watering. They're rubbing their hands together. Ooh. Listen, what's wrong with you, Anya? You're upset that the movie has interesting elements? Are you some sort of mad woman? Trust me, all those elements are rendered completely boring by uh, poor storytelling techniques. But There's also the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, the, the KKK is in this. Commies are in it. There's a lot going on here. South American action. And I'll, oh, Jesus Christ. That was perhaps the most offensive part of the film for me. I'll say this. My thesis is that uh, the FBI story has a really good, interesting movie inside it. But that's not the movie we saw. And I think as we talk about it and take you through it, you'll be able to unpeel this story for yourself and maybe see where th some things went wrong and some things could have with better direction better storytelling gone right because this 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 i i while i was watching this movie i was i was really enjoying parts of it i was really enjoying parts of it i was connecting with parts of it and you know i i'm gonna i think before we get started i appreciated the opportunity the movie gave me to catch up on facebook catch up on my tax my personal correspondence kevin filed his taxes for the next year already <laughs> <laughs> he was vacuuming and watching at the same time he was getting all sorts of things done no i mean the thing that kevin watched this previously okay without me uh rude of him before he met me you were furious about it i was i was pretty hurt but he watched this and he kind of came back to me being like yeah it's not perfect it's a flawed film it's kind of weirdly serialized and episodic for a feature-length film but you know it's it's good and you know why the reason he thought that is right i'm dumb no you're not dumb no you're you're very you're an intelligent gentleman but you watched it as you revealed later in 20 minute increments <laughs> for like a week yeah I, I had a situation where i had like 20 minutes for lunch and so i'd make a sandwich i'd watch 20 minutes of this picture and this movie is very episodic and if you watch it spread out, I think it's possible to enjoy it and not to notice some of the mind-numbing repetition. Yeah, it's almost like a TV show that thought it was a movie. And yeah, and, what, and what, works in that, a, what works in a TV show, as you can imagine, is very different than what works in a movie. 
And speaking of that, uh, one of the writers of the screenplay was Richard Breen, who was best known for his collaborations with Jack Webb on uh, Dragnet and Pat Novak. When you said that this was written by Jack Webb's friend, everything clicked for me. <laughs> it all made sense all of a sudden. It all made sense. The like, the almost the, the simpering devotion to uh, portraying cops, not only in a positive light, because this goes beyond that. This is in like a, this is in like a pandering. These are the most wholesome men you could ever dream of. Light and. Uh, that that's something that kind of kind of ha happens in Dragnet sometimes in a, in a more in a, in a different way, but in this, it just got cloying after a while. It was like, okay, we get it, beatify him already. He's canonized. This man is a saint. But the more you, the more here's a hint. The more you tell your audience how wonderful the main character is, the more they're gonna probably be like, oh, this fucking guy. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes the teacher bringing the kid to the head of the class and being like, you guys should all be more like Jimmy Stewart. You know, because that just makes you want to see a character struggle with stuff. You don't want to see them just get patted on the back by the movie every five minutes. Are you going to start talking about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey? <sighs> no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm just saying that I want to see uh, the characters I always like are the people who are like, you know, really trying hard and have good qualities, but, you know, are not getting everything like, like your Luke Skywalker types. <laughs> I don't even know what to compare this to. And before we get before we get going, I will say I I love Jimmy Stewart. He's great in a lot of stuff. In this, they over Jimmy Stewarted Jimmy Stewart. He's constantly. But you, but you mainly like him for his poetry, right? <laughs> yeah, his his, his, his beat poetry. He's, like, he's electric. <laughs> he wrote a poem about his dog, which tore my heart out as a child. See, he had a dog that he loved, and then it passed away. We we stand we stand Jimmy Stewart and we also previously really? on the, I do you don't. What did we just do? I think you you were always raving about him on the Jack Benny show. He was great on the Jack. He played Jack's uh, neighbor on the television program, basically the same part that Ronald Coleman played on the radio show. He was always aggravated with Jack. I'd put up with Jack being an awful annoying neighbor. Very funny. To me, Jimmy Stewart is like a, you know, he's like, it's like a, it's like salt, right? You know, like if, you know, a, a little bit of salt goes a long way in your meal. And if he's doing some Jimmy Stewartisms, that's great. But if he's, if the whole character is just that constantly in an annoying way, then it's like you've overloaded your dish with salt and then that's all you can taste. And it's like, it ruins the dish. And I think that's what happened here. You know, what we previously talked about him on Anatomy of a Murder. I thought he was great in that because you could you kind of got the Boy Scout vibe, but he's also now a kind of a fallen prosecutor. He's on the defense now. He's ready to kind of tangle with the prosecution using all the old tricks that had been used against him. So he's kind of got like a bit of a, a, a smart aleck and a sneaky and kind of a more vicious edge to him there. And that's kind of fun to see him play a little bit against type. But so here, is that, so here, is that, no, let me, here he's so typed down. They, they, like, it's like every Jimmy Stewart cliche you could imagine. And it's, it's, an, it's way too much. And it's just aggravating. He's basically like a nothingness, just a bumbling goofball who we're supposed to take seriously. So anatomy of a murder, that's like your platonic ideal of what a Jimmy Stewart movie should be. Yeah. You know, kind of like let him be charming, but don't let him 
don't let don't let him be cloying. When the character's written to be cloying, then that's just a bad combo. And on the Jack Benny uh, show, he was often allowed to express anger and frustration, which is which was fun to see. You know, he expresses anger and frustration in this movie, and it's played for laughs, but it's mostly at his small children. <laughs> well, and, and sometimes his wife. And sometimes his wife. So let's get into it. Um, FBI story is basically broken down into different cases that an individual well, well, FBI. Let's, let's talk about the framework is that Jimmy Stewart in the late 50s is giving a speech at the FBI headquarters uh, about his life and career for some reason. <laughs> and I mean, if I would hate to get roped into the audience for something like this. I mean, at your workplace, you find out someone's going to be retiring. He's going to give like a two and a half hour speech about his life and career over the past 35 years. You can say, well, sign me up for that. Are you just going to like, you know, send a, a card? With like a gift certificate in it to a target. I like I like to think that he'd just been he'd been, you know, forced to resign a few months earlier and then he just showed back up and gave this whole rambling speech and everyone was trying to figure out how to like de escalate the situation and get him the hell out of there. <laughs> and the first story he tells, uh, first of all, he begins it by saying, well, you know, Webster's defines murder as blah 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 blah. That's Worst possible way to begin a story. That is a high school. No, that's no. Ne, I give high schoolers some credit. That is a middle school essay tactic opening with a fucking Merriam-Webster's quote. So that's not it's not auspicious here, folks. But this first story he tells, I think, offers uh, a great example of what's wrong with the movie as a whole. Uh, the story is about a man who decides to kill his mother by blowing up a plane that she's on. And so he blows up the plane and his mother and other people die horribly. At which point the FBI comes into the case and we are given uh, a masturbatory ode to all the scientific work the FBI does to try to solve this case. They're gathering up pieces of the plane they're analyzing it. They're doing spectrometers and agmometers and this and that. And it's all so scientific and so impressive and so modern. Gizmos and gadgets. It's dazzling. It's like the, the, the magician in his laboratory or words to that effect. <laughs> and then he, it's really an ode to scientific detective work. And then he says, oh, by the way, we, we got the guy because we were surveilling a bunch of people in the neighborhood. So, so that's like a bit of a downer. Why are you telling us all that scientific stuff if it's completely irrelevant? Yeah, and it's just the answer to that is because it makes the FBI look momentarily cool. And 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 Hoover wants to put that in the movie. So it doesn't matter if it doesn't shore up the story at all. This is also based on a real case. Uh, Jack Gilbert Graham did, did murder his mother in this way, and a lot of people died. But there's something about, like, you know, maybe if you're going to base it on a real case, you could you could kind of center the focus and the action around what the FBI actually did do to solve it, as opposed to just all the incidental stuff that ended up maybe helping a trial, but otherwise not being particularly important. Yeah. If you're going to break the case by simple surveillance work, let's focus on that story. Also, I want to point out something very important here that's maybe not clear. Jimmy Stewart is not working this case from what I can tell. He's not involved at all. Right. He's just using this as an example in his opening. 
So in his big two and a half hour speech about his career, his big opening number is a case he's not in, even involved with. I should do that. I should give a talk at my workplace in my newsroom and just be like talk, o- going open on. With Watergate? Yeah, open, open with Watergate. Yeah, we were all, you know, and then it'd be like, were you alive in the 70s? And I'd be like, whoops, gotta go. And like, <laughs> I'd run off and my hat would be left spinning in the air. Like, I mean, like, what? what? That's what makes me think that Jimmy Stewart at the end is a broken man. And he's, he's just, he's giving this whole rambling speech and they're like, oh, God. A fucking ship's drunk again. Now he's up there. Can we get him out without it being a whole embarrassing thing? Is he armed? I don't know. It it just it, it, it's and listen. I'm gonna t- I'm gonna give the movie credit where it's due because I actually did enjoy elements of this strange strange artifact. My feeling was that elements of the plane explosion were exciting. It's sort of like Hitchcock's rule about like you let the audience know there's a bomb and the you know the people in the movie don't know there's a bomb. You know dramatic irony. That was. That was fun. There was two minutes of this movie that were genuinely entertaining. Yeah, I was like, I think I would say, in fairness, there's more than that. But this was this one was one where I'm like, I would have loved to like see Jimmy Stewart actually investigate this and have a little bit more time with it. But it's just kind of like it's it's like you're going on a tour. You're on a tour bus, and you know Jimmy Stewart's like, oh, see there, that's that, and then like that's it, and you're and you're driving on and you're looking at the next thing, which I don't think in most cases is going to be a particularly effective movie as you can imagine you know because they're not none of these things are linked there's no really thematic arc aside from look at how wonderful the fbi is but um that was one that i did i i liked i like the suspense there for a minute now in fairness to the movie there is another arc which is look how bad his wife is yeah wives they suck skirts who needs them that's what i say (laughs) Uh. <laughs> what? <laughs> you don't like my sexist character? <laughs> and we, we meet his wife here in a minute because right after he finishes this this very dull story about an exciting event, the plane explosion, we go back 30-some years to the mid-20s where Jimmy Stewart is supposed to be, I guess, in his mid-20s, but he looks exactly the same as he does in the opening of the movie except... <laughs> His hair has been badly dyed. Yeah. But he has all of these wrinkles. And he also, he walks and moves and speaks like an elderly man. And if you saw someone in his 20s walking and moving like this, what would you do? I'd say, hey, it's Kevin Greenlee. (laughs) (laughs) So in other words, you'd be very concerned for him. I would be concerned for him. And, And I just... Here's here's my question with this. You know, it's it is it fair to say in movies it's typically easier to make a guy look older than he is with makeup as opposed to younger than he is or just in general. I don't know. Bad like, makeup you could, is yeah, bad well, makeup. but you like you know they could have taken a younger guy and dyed his hair, you know, salt and pepper for the older scenes and then have him be young. I think that would have been easier. And in that case, you don't want to cast Jimmy Stewart because he's older at this point and that's okay. But like, I think the original sin of the picture is the decision to cover 30 years in yes. one movie. They could have had Jimmy Stewart. We talked about this after the movie, after we watched it, they could have easily told, picked one case, told it, had Jimmy Stewart be the older FBI agent who has a lot of experience and then cast another person if they wanted like a young guy to do other things. And then they could have had their stories coexisting 
as they go for a particularly interesting case in which they have to use the FBI's, you know, multitude of bounty and goods and scientific prowess in order to solve it. Because here's the thing, propaganda is way more effective when you're when you're showing rather than telling how cool your agency is. And when it's just incidental to the plot, but like you're you're still you're conveying it in a natural, non-forced way. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And let me say, the FBI, obviously, we're all adults here. It's not a perfect agency. Been severe problems in the history of the agency. But with that said, they have been involved in a huge number of very interesting cases, including cases where they've done outstanding work. So I think it would be child's play to make a movie about a case the FBI was involved in and did well in and make it interesting. I really think this movie bears a lot of the hallmarks of like J. Edgar Hoover just being a weirdo. Because I really feel like he gave the film producers a list of cases. And they were like, oh, cool. So maybe we can pick our top three. And he's like, you're doing all of them. <laughs> like, Those are all going in the movie. <laughs> you know, like he's like fast talking them. He apparently talked really fast because he had a stutter or something. And like just, you know, and they're just like, okay, okay, Mr. Hoover, don't don't publish those photos of a dancing girl that we were with. You know, like it, it, it just smacks of. It just smacks of like he wanted all of these cases covered and they just went along with it because he he had to the legend is or I don't know how accurate this is, but the legend is that he had to approve every single frame of this film and that they did reshoots to uh, to please him specifically. So he was a huge stakeholder. Why would they even agree to that? I don't know why they would agree with it. I mean, because it's not like the access that he's able to give them is that particularly interesting. Frankly, you could could have probably anyone with an imagination and the ability to do a modicum of research could have probably come up with a pretty interesting story that would have been positive for the FBI by themselves. So it's not like uh, maybe, maybe other than like they got to shoot outside the building or something. Yeah. Let's while we're on that, uh, there are a lot of scenes shot in or near the building or training grounds where we have, Really bad actors who I'm going to suspect are actual FBI agents. Quantico, the boys of Quantico. Wait, Do, that's FBI, right? Yeah, like, discussing training, like like okay, boys, here is where you point the gun at the target and fire, but be careful. <coughs> oh, you hit the wrong target. Okay, now it's time for the next. And this goes on for like what? A half hour? Yeah, that scene was basically 20 minutes. And there's lots of these training scenes which add nothing and are done poorly by non-charismatic performers. 
honestly, this whole this whole thing would have probably been more interesting for me as a documentary if they just wanted to do a documentary interviewing the actual people who work these cases and then showed some cuts of like training exercises because then at least the expectation for your level of charisma and acting would have been very low so you could have gotten some like just informational you know stuff out of it but you wouldn't have been expecting you know them to perform necessarily i feel like that's what they were trying to go for almost like a documentary style situation but the the blending of like a big hollywood movie with like then this like you know intricate like let's talk about everything we want to talk about just feels like you know it, it's a it's a bad marriage speaking of bad marriages so this first flashback is as i said i, I think in the mid-20s i think probably 1924 i'm playing that day just off the top of my head uh jimmy stewart is somewhere i think in the midwest and he learns he's, he's tennessee in a, he's in tennessee uh, tennessee is part of the midwest by the way you say what what did you say he was? Tennessee. You're the only ten I see. Oh. Boom, boom, boom. I shot you with my Tommy gun. <laughs> For being corny. <laughs> Anya hates it when you say kind things to her. So if you ever meet her in person and if you want to make an impression, be really rude and intemperate. No, what you know what you do? You make a two hour and thirty minutes movie about me, documenting in really boring detail, like any remotely cool thing I was or was not involved in. That's what you. That's the way to my heart. <laughs> that's how I won you. The Kane story. <laughs> now on Amazon Prime. So he he he's unhappy there. Uh, and he learns he's going to have to go to Washington, D.C. And so then he goes over to the library where he has a girlfriend. And he says, girlfriend, we need to get married because I'm going to be transferred soon. And I want you to come with me. And she says, you're not happy in the FBI. It's a potentially dangerous career. You could do better work in other agencies and other fields. And you can make more money and be happier. I'll marry you if you just leave the FBI. And he agrees to that. But then, after they get married, he goes to D.C. where he learns that some new hotshot has taken over the FBI. Some young firecracker by the name of J. Edgar Hoover who gives a speech saying, I'm going to make this FBI something special. And Jimmy Stewart says, well, I like the sound of that. Maybe I won't quit after all. And so then he goes and he tells his wife this. And she grudgingly accepts his decision to stay in the FBI, even though he's given her his solemn word that he'll leave. And this basically is the same story we see repeated over and over again throughout the picture. They, they made the decision in this movie to intersperse all of the crime stories with stories of Jimmy Stewart's home life. Yeah. And all the stories about his home life are basically his wife being unhappy that he's in the FBI and then accepting it. And then later she's unhappy about it, eh, but she accepts it. But then she's unhappy about it, but eh, she accepts it. But then she's so unhappy, she leaves him. But you know, then she comes back because she accepts it. <laughs> so they, 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 they hit that note. Over and over and over again. They intersperse it, though, for a little bit of variety. 
of Jimmy Stewart complaining about his children in ways that are meant to be humorous. Like we've just seen him take down dangerous bank robbers or defeat the Ku Klux Klan. And then the next scene, he's saying, oh, my kids took all my tissue paper. Oh, that's that's not right. They've taken my tissue paper. And I think we're supposed to find this cute. But it's just like, are we supposed to be... He's acting like the tissue paper is just as important as capturing John Dillinger. So there's no real sense of proportion or stakes. Also, it's not like it's funny. It's not like, oh, like my wacky dad. Like, like a dad character doesn't have to be perfect. But like we see him hit this note, just like Kevin was saying with, with the marriage situation repeating itself again and again. In virtually, it feels like every scene with the kids, there's there's something like that where it's like, oh, who did this? Oh, you you know, like where where's my slippers? Oh, why are you doing that? And he's just constantly criticizing and yelling at his kids. And it, it's like, is this meant to be like he's this man is obviously riddled with anxiety and he's expressing it by like freaking out at his family constantly for minor incidents. Because instead of like, you know, going to fucking therapy because, he you know, is in the FBI and might get killed. He, he, he this is how he deals with his stress. That's what it felt like. And it was it, after a while, it was just grating to watch. And you're just waiting. Like, when is your wife going to tell you to settle the fuck down? <laughs> Like, like, Jesus Christ. And when is she? Oh, I mean, the family it, was just awful. It's like he's Michael Scott in the office thinking he's funny or cute, and he's not. And it's like all those family scenes come from like another movie entirely different from this one. An even worse movie. <laughs> and then also is part of this, he'll occasionally, very, very, very rarely make some small, tiny gesture to one of his children at which point he'll be lionized as the greatest father in the world like one of his daughters at one point is about to make a speech and he uh, says oh look over there there's a flower in a vase i'm going to take i'm going to take this flower in this vase and eh, why don't you put it on your shirt You're, maybe it'll make you look nice oh my god that's so sweet of you <laughs> you care kevin did actually cry during the scene i'll note <laughs> it's crying like a baby <laughs> And then she goes and she gives the speech and she, you know, fucks it up and is sad and runs out crying. And it's like, is Jimmy Stewart telling all the people in the audience about the time his daughter humiliated herself in public? <laughs> Let's talk about the humiliating blocking on that scene. That's all you, babe. So <laughs> I don't know how to say this. This is not PG in the least. Um, the way that scene is shot when basically the situation is she runs out. The daughter hides in the car. She's crying. She's understandably upset. And Jimmy Stewart comes in the car to comfort her. And let's say the girl, the the you know, the, the daughter who's high school age is sitting in maybe like the, the driver's seat, or at least she's sitting in the in the in the seat of the car that's closest to the camera. And he's sitting in the in the seat uh, furthest away, maybe the passenger seat. And the way that they have him reaching <laughs> Like, and I'm maybe we're just really perverted, but the way they have him reaching over to like pet her on the you know shoulder and stuff and comfort her, it just looks kind of wrong. And she's like crying, and it it's not blocked well. It looked. What, what did you think it looked like? It looked like <laughs> looked like they were having sex. See, that's what Anya <laughs> thought. I thought it was just a touching scene between a father and a, and a daughter that he was comforting. You were getting all blue. You you were you were like red fox over there. No, I you were you were said it. Look, you started 
cracking up when you saw that. I was crying. <laughs> I was so touched. You like just drop the cigarette from your mouth. And say, oh, it looks like he's having sex with his daughter. <laughs> it, was really, it was a really weirdly blocked scene. There was no reason for it to be filmed that way. I don't know. And here's the thing. If Hoover was supposed to one by one go through each frame to make sure everything was was up and up, why the fuck didn't he circle that and say, uh, <laughs> get Leroy in here. What the fuck is this? <laughs> Maybe you'll watch, maybe like a listener will watch this and tell us we're nuts. But I, I thought it looked for like, I, I, it was one of those things where like you're watching and you're like, okay, okay, whatever, this is happening. And then suddenly you're like, wait, what? And then you're like, oh, okay, I guess it's just, I guess it's just the angle. <laughs> you were suddenly like waving a fan in front of your face, like, oh my. Oh my God. Oh, stars and garters. Well, I'm sorry you were too busy uh, weeping in my lap to uh, even <laughs> pay attention at this point because you were so touched. <laughs> All those times you fucked up a speech, no one came and comforted you. <laughs> People just left you in the mud, <laughs> left you in the dust. <laughs> oh, man. Um, as long as we're talking about the family, should yeah. we, we just finish it up? Yeah, let's keep talking about the family. So they also have a son, and his son tells Jimmy Stewart that he wants to join the Marines, and Jimmy Stewart doesn't mention this to his wife, which you were outraged about. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a pretty serious decision. This is taking place during uh, World War II, so the son is going to be you know, sent off to fight in either the European or the the Pacific theater. And uh, that's a big deal. And that seems like a family discussion because the son is still, he's only 18 at this point. So that seems like a conversation. If a son came to his dad to talk about that, you know, if the, if the parents are co-equals in the family, that seems like a conversation you'd want your wife in as well. Now it's the, in my opinion, he's 18. It's the son's choice, but I just felt the way that Jimmy Stewart kind of hid it from his wife was kind of shitty because that that implies like a lack of respect i don't know is it my plan when we have kids is to have like a multi-volume set of things these are the things we hide from mother (laughs) (laughs) can a really dumb picture of me be on the cover of that multi-volume set oh yes yeah (laughs) just looking like a total doofus and the bottom of each page be one of those little flip books of you making faces Our kids will be like doing like dead drops or something to get communiques to you, uh, you know, without me hearing about it. It's going to be a whole thing. I'm going to be after I'm going to be like fucking FBI, like dealing with like uh, espionage rings in my own household. It's going to be like microfilm. I'm going to be intercepting it. What the fuck are these kids doing next? Frankly, even now, Lanny and I are running some operations that you have no idea what's going on. I know Lanny's doing the Marines. Thanks for telling me. (laughs) The doggy Marines. Now, Lanny would be on the other side of the... Uh, she'd be she'd be one of the doggy gangsters. Okay. She'd be like one of those John Dillinger types where she'd be... Uh, oh, like stylish? Yeah, she'd be stylish. She'd be driving the cars, uh, <laughs> driving little doggy cars. <laughs> Thank you, Henry Ford, for making a great dog car. <laughs> she'd be carving dog biscuits out of soap to trick the guards. <laughs> the pound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, 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 public enemy. 
So is it like a dog FBI too? Yeah, there's a. Uh, I'd like to see that movie. The Fido Bureau of Investigation. Why didn't they make a movie about that? I'd watch the hell out of that. What would it? What what kind of dog would J. Edgar Hoover be? Like a bulldog. Yeah, like a little little bulldog. Now at, at this point, I feel like we must mention the Space Cannon Patrol agents, which is a bunch of superhero dogs who patrol space. <laughs> okay. Each one has amazing powers like you have your husky tusky who has the power to grow like a really big tooth so are there, are there agents like that in the phyto bureau of investigation kevin they're they're government agents they're not grow up they're not superhero dogs they're just average working public servants putting their lives on the line to protect other dogs against crazy freaking outlaws like lanny so is like scooby-doo involved in this yeah, he's one of their best. <laughs> That's quite an indictment because he doesn't really seem to be cut out for the work. He's undercover, man. He's undercover with a group of hippies. Ooh, he's out to infiltrate the counterculture? Yeah, he's doing, uh, what is it, <laughs> Cointel Pro? <laughs> Cointel Pro? Yeah, Cointel Pro. <laughs> yeah, he's going after the left. <laughs> Wow, you're, you're just like blowing my mind Yeah, this here. is actually blowing my mind too. <laughs> now that I think about it, it kind of makes sense. Lay it on me, how does it make sense? Well, he's always kind of trying to avoid doing anything directly. And that's so as probably to not like fuck up a case in court. He's just always like, you know. But then I guess he's kind of corrupt because he's constantly taking Scooby snacks from them. So that's kind of, that's bribery. So he's like the, he's like the FBI agent in like the Whitey Bulger case. <laughs> So are any of the Scooby gang aware of his double role? Or is he fooling all of them? he's fooling them. So even Shaggy, his best friend. Yeah. Zoinks. <laughs> he must be a real monster. Jesus, why are we writing this dark Scooby-Doo fan fiction? <laughs> Tell me you're- I've, I've lost all respect for Scooby-Doo. You're, you're space, yeah. I held him in the highest possible esteem. He, apparently he's a narc in our, in our thing that we just made up now. <laughs> Nah, Scooby's cool. I'm not gonna. Scooby's part of my childhood too, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. He's not a narc. He, what about gonna, Huckleberry Hound? Surely he's a narc. Surely, yeah. Oh, he's definitely a narc. Definitely Go a narc. Goofy. No. Why would? What would they do with Goofy? <laughs> Pluto. No, I don't think so. Snoopy. They don't even go there. What about Sandy? He's a he's an American hero. <laughs> what about Sandy, little orphan Annie's dog? I would think so. Wow. My question for you is the space thing. That's from the Superman universe, right? Yes. And Kevin actually, early in our relationship, showed me some panels from an, a, a comic book edition where one of those dogs gets killed. It gets blown up. Of course, that's Mammoth Mutt, who leaves behind him the young widow Mammoth Miss. And he dies saying, yee! And I let me just, I didn't need to see that. <laughs> Obviously, it helped win you over. It was, part, it was part of my plan. Never write a book on dating, Kevin. <laughs> You'll lead a lot of young men astray. No other man ever showed you panels of the Space Camp Patrol agents. Yes. And out of all your suitors, I was the one that won the hand of the fair young Anya. 
Yeah, you were fighting an uphill battle after that uh, space patrol, paw patrol thing. Space canine patrol agents. They're the dog legion. You should <laughs> you should write some sort of FBI story-esque movie about them where it just it's really boring and gets into all the nitty-gritty of their, uh, their work in an uninteresting way. Y- y- of course, you know, their enemies are the pet cats of the Kryptonian criminals who were exiled to the Phantom Zone. Ah, of course. So that's fascinating battles. <laughs> you have to admit, a movie about them would have been better than this. Actually, probably. That's fair. Probably. Well, let's... <laughs> probably. I don't want to see a dog die. We all meet our maker at some point. It's part of life. Speaking of that. <laughs> what? Oh, oh yeah. And so back to this picture. Uh, you remember they had a son who joined the Marines. That ends well. So there's a big party. And the family's happy and celebrating. And Jimmy Stewart is singing. And there's a doorbell. And it's the man with a telegram bringing them the tragic news that their son died at Iwo Jima. Surprise! I mean, it was like, what the fuck are we watching at this point? And, like, listen, like, a lot of young men died in World War II, and it's tragic and upsetting, but the problem with this movie, again and again, it gives, and, and I think it actually, weirdly enough, has the same problems in the family scenes as the crime scenes. But basically, like, very serious things are happening. Life-shaking, altering events, whether that's crimes perpetuated by violent and horrible groups or, uh, you know, personal events that are really heavy in a way. And the mo- I can dig it. The movie really... Uh... <laughs> I'm glad you can dig it, Kevin. Well, you but... said it was heavy. <laughs> I'm just telling you. This... You're telling it like it I'm is. I'm telling you like it is. It's in... But the movie treats them all sort of with this, like, you know, candy cheesiness of kind of like, oh, what'll happen next? And it's like... But case in point, you know, that scene and, and, and like it, 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 none of it feels human. None of it feels real. None of it feels lived in. There's a scene where the wife actually has a miscarriage while Jimmy Stewart is investigating a case and he comes back and talks with her. And like, that's a really personal, upsetting, sad situation that, you know, could really, you know, uh, you know, very, very tragic for a couple and, you know, and, and a, an expecting mother to lose a baby like that. And, you know, they kind of dwell on out how serious it is for a minute. But then Jimmy Stewart's like, oh, well, we don't need any more babies. And, you know, that Bible you were looking at and trying to fill our children's name into that has 24 spaces. So you're never going to have that many babies. So don't worry about it. You know, to be honest, he makes a good point. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> So a a moment that could have been like humanizing or like you see how, you know, and all of this, all of these kind of traumatic incidents, whether it's the son's, um, whether it's the son's death or the miscarriage or the fight between the couple that leads to the wife leaving, nobody changes, nobody grows. It's just the same thing happening to the same people over and over again. And it's just like, they kind of just Teflon, basically nothing sticks to them. And, and that, that makes it unsatisfying to watch these very serious life events happening 
And you don't get a situation where like Jimmy Stewart transfers to have a safer job or that his wife has to just get used to it or like, like you don't really nothing's resolved. It's so unsatisfying to watch because like they're actually incidents that could be interesting, but they're just devoid of any sort of like impact. So all this family stuff that we've been discussing, I'd say it's at least 40 percent of the movie. Feels like more, but yeah, that's fair. And it's interspersed. Like, we'll have a, a crime episode, and then we'll have a family episode, and then we'll have a crime episode. So we, we've kind of mashed all the family stuff uh, up together. Viewers can have a little crime stuff as a treat. <laughs> and again, there's also a speech he's giving. And Don't you think people are sitting there, like, just shifting uncomfortably in their seats as he's talking about, like, his dead son and his wife's miscarriage? and like Or or his daughter giving a speech and forgetting the words or the time he had trouble finding enough tissue paper or the time he had trouble getting the lights on his Christmas tree. Or by that time, his wife left him. Why is he doing this? I'm just going to stand up and be like, I don't want to know this, man. Stop. (laughs) You don't have to do this in public. It, it, like it, I, it, I can't even imagine w- those people who left that speech that day were leaving changed peoples. Like they, they, they are not, they are not the same fresh-faced FBI cadets who came into that building. They are now weary. Maybe, maybe this is some sort of weird J. Edgar Hoover mind control tactic. Like he's gonna get this insane guy to stand up and tell them his life story, and and that's gonna harden them somehow, so they'll be able to deal with the worst and most serious crimes. Before we go into the crimes, I'm curious. What is the worst speech you've either heard or gave? <laughs> um, I gave a really bad speech about like Roman history when I was a freshman in college, where like I kind of came into it with like a weird amount of cockiness for me because I'm a very anxious person, and normally I'd be like, okay, I need to be ready for this. But this one, I love Roman history, so I was like, eh, we'll wing it, and then <laughs> that ended up not being such a great idea. <laughs> Tell us more. Um, I've blacked out a lot of it, uh, but I, it was a group project, and I, I, I was way too cocky about it, and I, I think I made myself look kind of like an idiot <laughs> in front of everyone in a survey class. So, yeah, I was in a class once where we were supposed to give speeches, and I wrote a speech, and I stood up there and I started giving it, and they were all on the palm of my hands. They were all loving it. You could tell when an audience is with you and they were with me. And at one point in the speech, I was describing uh, a circumstance where people were doing something that was just primary to make themselves feel better. It didn't really have any lasting impact other than temporarily making themselves feel better. And so I decided, you know, when I was writing it, I thought, what would be a colorful way to describe that? To bring it alive <laughs> to these fellow students. And the thing that came to my mind to compare it to was masturbation. <laughs> Naturally. Yes. I'm always talking about masturbation. Yes, you are. <laughs> Famous for it. And so I compare it to masturbation and all the people in the audience, their faces go pale. The teacher's mouth drops. And uh, I was embarrassed. So that's my worst speech. <laughs> it's really <laughs> It's a pretty good comparison. <laughs> what kind of 
going to get. I thought it was an apt metaphor. No, I, I'm going to tell you the worst speech I've ever sat through that I didn't give. And this was this is more comparable to, I think, what Jimmy Stewart's doing here. I went to this bougie fucking high school like situation and our graduation ceremony was always bizarrely. I don't know. Maybe, maybe other schools do this, but like uh, the students would speak like the class president, blah, blah, blah. And then like a parent elected by the student body would speak because I guess the parents in my town all have really bad personality disorders and they like need to be involved with every step of their children's lives because they don't have anything of their own. So this, <laughs> this is the result of that. And with one of my sisters, when she graduated, I was at the graduation ceremony and the mom got up there and basically said that, you know, you know, one thing you'll realize when you get to college is, you know, by dint of being from this small New York suburb, you kids are all better than everyone else. And like other people grew up in towns with like drug overdoses and stuff. But you guys are special and you won't have to deal with any of that. And you're just better than everyone else. So just, you know, be proud of that and, and definitely lean into it. <laughs> I remember I just like I was just sitting there like, what the fuck? Overdoses were a problem in my town too. So it was she was just drinking some sort of Kool-Aid that, you know, I didn't have access to, but it was it was pretty appalling. But then I looked around and like a bunch of people were like nodding and it was like the fuck is wrong with the place where I come from? So that that was definitely like like out of body disassociating bad bad of a speech that I sat through. But you know, I'm from the suburbs of New York, so you get a lot of people with their heads solidly off their asses up there. <laughs> <laughs> I was like looking around, like is anyone else hearing this? Like is anyone else seeing this <laughs> happen in front of me? But uh. At least she didn't break down all the best moments of uh, of the town or something, because that that would have been maybe a little bit more like FBI. But it definitely had a an air an air of psychosis that sort of I would imagine Jimmy Stewart's speech would have to have going on this long. Okay, here's my most awkward speech that I sat through. This is uh, end of eighth grade. I'm sitting. It's a school assembly. And I'm sitting next to a friend of mine named Jeff. Jeff is a smart guy, maybe a little nerdy. He's not super popular, but he's smart. He's funny. He's my friend. I'm sitting next. Of course, I, you know, is the big jock type. <laughs> what a stud. Yeah, I deign to uh, allow this nerd to be my friend. <laughs> so I'm sitting next to Jeff and... Uh, that was basically at my school. I grew up in uh, basically southern Indiana, so I think there was one person of color at my middle school. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but if I am, it's not by much. And so they, they invited this person, her name was Angela, to come up and give a speech. And she's, she's talking, her, the theme of her speech is people who don't seem to be really uh, impressive but have hidden reserves and they're really great and she's like first talking about like people in history who like, like may have been overlooked but they turned out to be real winners who made a huge difference in life and so then I I, I guess she wanted to personalize it oh no <laughs> she said and there's someone who falls into this category here at this school I'm talking about Jeff. Oh, no! 
<laughs> and she gives his last name. Uh, everybody turns and looks at him. <laughs> and she says, but you see him walking down the hallway. You just think, boy, this is a big loser. <laughs> He's just a big nothing. What a nerd. And she goes on and on talking about the bad impression Jeff makes on everyone. <laughs> and how everybody hates him. But she's like, you know, deep down, he's really smart, and he's a winner, too. Good night, everybody. That'd be funny if she'd lost the last card. <laughs> Jeff was so embarrassed and unhappy and angry. I have a question. Like, who was this woman? Or was it another student? It was another student who was a very good speaker. I think she's, uh, at some point, she ran for political office. And it was on the platform of Jeff fucking sucks. <laughs> Let's get him out of here. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's amazing. The last time I saw her was after I graduated high school. I enjoy buying old books. And a great place to find old books is to go to thrift stores. And there was a thrift store in town that was some sort of uh, charity for the poor. And so I go there, but they have books. They have books there for a nickel apiece. And so I'm there looking for the books. And As usual. <laughs> and she she comes in with some big, splashy donation. And she says, oh, Kevin, you know, I think it's so important to give to the poor because it enriches all of us. And it helps all these poor souls here at the at go, who go to stores like this. What? And then she, like, looks at me and she says, oh. So she thinks I'm down on my luck at the store. And she then quickly excused herself and went away. And that was the last time I saw her. <laughs> Angela. She sounds like an asshole. <laughs> yeah, she's given this speech about helping the poor souls at the store. In the middle of the Who store. Who talks like that? Who talks like that in real life? Angela. Jesus Christ. She sounds like nut. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she won her office. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, the, I was pontificating like that. Just, no. But don't you often give speeches in stores? Yes, I, I pull up my soapbox. I stand up in the middle of the produce section and start yelling at the top of my lungs. I guess, in fairness, your uh, venue that you prefer is just the anonymous manifesto. Ah, yes. I do much better with that. You know, published in the New York Times. Suddenly my family's uh, contacting the FBI. <laughs> Which brings us full circle back to this picture. Interrupting my nice little cabin in the woods. <laughs> A hot mess. What's the first crime we cover? Well, we already got into the bombing of the plane. We pretty much said everything we need to say about that. So um, I want to I wanna start off with, when we talk about the crimes, um, this, this, this uh, we talked about the family. I talked about my thesis that the family doesn't, you know, elicit character development or any sort of change with anybody. The crimes are sort of the same thing, you know, and, and here's, here's an example in the beginning. There's a throwaway line where Jimmy Stewart's saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm unsatisfied because the boss of at my, at the FBI is he's a political appointee. And I keep telling him that people are being like basically enslaved and not able to vote in this Tennessee area, you know, and I'm assuming those are African-Americans, although they never, the movie does not specify that. You know, but I can't do anything about it. And that's just a throwaway line. You know, like that that's a huge injustice, racial injustice, discrimination, persecution going on. And they just kind of treat that as like a ha ha, he can't do his job. 
And that's basically the tone the movie takes towards a lot of these crimes. So it can be kind of offensive watching them if you're familiar with the crimes and you know that something horrific happened and the movie's kind of treating it kind of like, wah, wah, or like, you know, oh, Jimmy Stewart is the central person in this. He's, he's the one who's, you know, this white dude coming from outside dealing with it. He's the one we should be following here. And we talk about voting rights without mentioning African-Americans. We talk about the Ku Klux Klan without mentioning African-Americans. Other than a waiter, is there any person of color in this picture? There's not a single person of Well, no, that's not true. There's a, there's, there's a waiter. There's Native Americans. Yes. Yes. Uh, some people, after we watched this movie, I saw, by the way, that some people believe that the waiter was actually played by a young James Earl Jones. Was it? I would have to watch the movie again. We'd have to fast forward to that scene. And I don't oh, that's want... that's never happening. <laughs> so maybe it's James Earl Jones. Maybe it's not. It's it's pretty it's pretty bad if you're if you're if you're you know there's the there's a trend in movies where it's like the the white savior plot right and that's that's problematic but this goes beyond that because at least in something like like a Mississippi burning where it is actually about white FBI agents dealing with the situation at least that names the situation it's racism it's the murder of these young uh you know activists you know one of whom was a an African American man two of whom or white, but this is just, it just dances around it. It doesn't even want you, what you, you, if you were an alien, you would watch this film and you would have no idea what the Ku Klux Klan was all about. You'd think, I, I guess they just like dressing up like, you know, in bed sheets. You, you would, you would come with, they're just generic bad guys in this. They have no point of view. And, you know, and, and the person you see them attacking in this is for some reason a white newspaper editor. Now, listen, I know the story. Before everyone cancels me, I know that they went after white people too sometimes. They didn't like Italians. They didn't like anyone who wasn't Anglo-Saxon Protestant. So I'm not saying that that's not realistic. I'm just saying that like when you talk about the history of the KKK in the USA and like the people they were predominantly going after, you know, at this time, you know, if you're not mentioning African-Americans, then you're you're trying to dance around the issue in a way that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> But I guess that's what Hoover wanted, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what it feels like. Yeah. You know, and I guess nobody wanted to, you know, like they wanted to be like, the KKK is bad, but we're not really going to get into it too much. You know, they don't want to offend anybody's sensibilities, I guess. That's what it feels like. And, uh, and you know, and the movie suffers for that. Uh the KKK scene, by the way, uh, Jimmy Stewart has a friend named Sam who was also an FBI agent. You know he's dead from the jump because he's like the you know comic relief, and at some point he he tells Jimmy Stewart like Jimmy Stewart's like cool off, like you take being an FBI agent too seriously. And he's like I never want that's the difference between me and you. <laughs> I never want to cool down. It's like okay, um, but he at this point he and Jimmy Stewart actually dress up as KKK people in the hoods and stuff, and they like lock a bunch of KKK people in the truck with their kidnap victim, and they say like haha we got you now. And like that's the end of that. Like that's also Jimmy Stewart runs away from his wife, who's giving birth to their first child in this scene. So muddling the family and the career stuff really it does this picture no, uh, no good here. 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Wasn't his friend Sam present when J. Edgar Hoover was giving his speech? Yes. So Sam is another kind of interesting aspect of this film that I think with a more competent filmmaker could have, this character could have done something for me. Um, he starts off, he's, he's, he's just Jimmy Stewart's buddy and he's definitely the more committed FBI agent. Definitely. Of, as a foil to Jimmy and uh, whose, whose name is Chip, by the way, in this movie. Um, and he is, uh, it won't, I mean, he's kind of the guy who convinces Jimmy Stewart to stay with the FBI, which was kind of bizarre. Yeah. He gives this long speech about how uh, basically Jimmy Stewart needs to stay with the FBI because Americans are full of Americans are a bunch of thieving, murderous little bastards and we need to keep them under control. Got to crush them. Got to just wipe them out. Crush them under our shoes. Firm grip. Jimmy Stewart's fascist friend Sam, uh, you know, is is kind of is yeah he's he's, he's like the he's the more gung ho guy and then like his you know Jimmy Stewart and his wife you know he promised his wife that he's going to leave the bureau which you could say is unreasonable of her if that's the career he wants but also they're a couple so they're making decisions together but that Sam interferes and goes on this whole rant in the train in front of them about how Jimmy Stewart needs to stay because Americans suck and it's it's just an odd it's an odd scene. Uh, but you know, and like I, like I said, when when in the in the scene where Kevin described uh, Hoover, you know, giving this whole big speech about how he's gonna clean up the bureau, uh, you know, and like go, you know go, going on and on about you know how all this stuff is gonna change and like oh, but how you know organized crime probably doesn't exist, you know, you just see Sam in the background tearfully jacking off because <laughs> he just gives all that kind of over exuberant energy. <laughs> And you know, yeah, like, I mean, immediately, like he, like he, he, you know, he's gonna die. I mean, I knew he was gonna die when we met him, because it just it seems like this is the guy who's gonna be an example for like how much, how much the FBI, you know, risks for us. They can't kill off Chip. They can't, they can't uh, get Jimmy Stewart out of there. So they're gonna kill this guy, and they do. Who is he killed by? Which I, I kept on calling. I called him Pretty Boy Nelson and Babyface Floyd, and Kevin was yelling at me. <laughs> I mean, she needs to learn her basic U.S. history. Baby boy Floyd. <laughs> Baby face Nelson, pretty boy Floyd. Okay, well, he gets... You to... need to do some research. Sorry, Kevin, we can't all grow up in the 30s. <laughs> yeah, they... The, the, uh, Public Enemies by Brian Burroff is a great start. Pretty boy Floyd kills this guy uh, after some hijinks and he di he dies in Jimmy Stewart's arm talking about, oh, the lilies are coming in or something like that. We've gotten ahead of ourselves. Yeah, where are we? This movie. <laughs> it's so hard to talk about. It just so many. It's like it's like talking about a TV show all at once. So after uh, the KKK thing, there was some offensive stuff about Native Americans. Oh, God. Oh, let's talk about that because I think that's. That's a crime people will be thinking about a lot more. Why recently. is that, Anya? Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant is an excellent, 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 beautifully written, heartbreaking, and just uh, seething book on this case. Um, basically, uh, Native Americans in Oklahoma 
inherited oil and mineral rights, land rights. And the land was worthless for a long time, but then they oil was discovered, so this land became very valuable and these people became very wealthy. And basically a cottage industry of white people cropped up around them to scam them and then later to murder them so that the white people would inherit their land rights. And it was basically like a, a fair to say that Grand's research indicates that it was like a genocide going on in the area. It was that bad. People were getting killed left and right. It's a really disgusting, despicable story that's only recently gotten attention. Like they're, they're making a movie about it with uh, Leo DiCaprio soon, but it's, it's when you read that book, it's like you're 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 angry, you're sad, you're upset. But this just treats it like it's like a sideshow. You got Jimmy Stewart walking in and being like, "These crazy natives, they bought a limo. Ha ha! Isn't that weird to see?" And it's like, "Fuck you!" It's like I said, it was like watching. It's like like a ghoul, like a ghoul. Picture a ghoul in your mind. It's a really horrifying creature. It's disgusting. You, you you're looking at it and you're kind of scared and upset. And then this is like. Somebody tried to put makeup on the ghoul to make it look nice. And you still know it's a ghoul. And it's almost more creepy to see it wearing makeup. And that that's how I felt. This portraying this case was just like, it was like, ha ha, these guys are rich. And they like bought a lot of telephones or they bought a lot of bathtubs. And it's like very judgmental at the victims of the crime. You know, the, the almost the implication seems to be like, well, what did they think was going to happen if they got rich? And I found that disturbing. And like, like the FBI did work on that case, but the FBI's role in the case is more complicated because the guy who was actually investigating it for the FBI was an enemy of Hoover's. So they didn't get along. There was a lot of push and pull. It wasn't, it wasn't a straightforward case of the FBI coming in and being heroic. I would argue that there's cases where the FBI has done really good work on it. Right. And they, and they kind of just knocked it out of the park. This was not one of them. And I mean, they got some people in the end, but justice was pretty evasive for the people who perpetuated some of these murders. There was one part of that sequence, though, that I believe you did like. Uh, one of the murders was uh, basically a house exploded, exploded into nothingness. And then there was a bit of dialogue at that point. Can you reveal that dialogue that you love so much? Classic Richard Breenism. Oh yeah, one of the one of the, the somebody asked like the local sheriff, "Is there a reason why you think it's murder?" Referring to the house explosion, and the guy says, "One reason is that there used to be a house here with people living in it." So I thought that was all right. I like a little bit of snappy, sarcastic dialogue here. Richard Breen's dialogue. There you go, but. You know, generally, I felt like the the depiction of this crime, you know, was was pretty offensive. Uh, and then after that, we have the story where they go after gangsters and his friend Sam gets killed. I know we already talked about that, but I, I really want to mention that it had the most almost insulting and offensive funeral scene imaginable because the <laughs> minister comes out says, you know this guy died yeah i didn't know him but he was probably a good guy <laughs> that's basically the that eulogy is, yeah that was the eulogy like huh, i didn't even know this dead dude i guess he was fine he's probably with god who the fuck am i to say <laughs> i hope i get as lovely a eulogy when i go 
And then the, what's funny is that Pretty Boy, they established that Pretty Boy Floyd. Wait, was it Pretty Boy Floyd? Or, no, it was Babyface Nelson. One of those assholes. Kevin, you have a thesis on these guys with like the fancy names as they pertain to the FBI. Why didn't, why didn't you share that? I don't know if it's my thesis. I think other people have suggested. Okay, well, a thesis you've spouted at me a few times. Butterscotch. <laughs> Uh, I think the idea is that a lot of these uh, criminals were basically nobodies, lower class criminals from the Midwest, and the FBI uh, encouraged the proliferation of the use of colorful nicknames for them so that when they were inevitably taken down by the FBI, it would make it seem like the FBI was really getting mythic figures. Yeah. And, and but what's funny about those mythic figures in this is that they kind of just breeze through them and you have Sam getting murdered by one of them and then they immediately just bounce to Dillinger. John Dillinger, who is a Hoosier and one of the more, I think you and I can agree, one of the more colorful bank robbers at the time because he actually had a, a sense of style. Today he could have been a good a bank robbery influencer or something. Uh, but he, you know, they jump to him and it's like we have... You know, the emotional connection is now with the guy who killed your partner, not this other random dude who we, we were just naming now. And it, and I also would argue that the what were, what were you going to say? No, go ahead. I would argue that the, uh, the the takedown of Dillinger was not something the FBI should be bragging about. They breezed through that whole thing. Dillinger was shot outside a theater coming out. Biograph Theater, 1934, after having seen Manhattan Melodrama, which starred uh, the young Myrna Loy. And William Powell. Clark Gable. We well, we stand Powell and uh, Gable? Loy. No, and Loy. That's the thin man couple. We love them. But, uh, no, I mean, like, they basically shot a guy when he wasn't expecting it. Is that that heroic? Like, you know, like, they just kind of gunned him down in the street. So, they, I mean, would you argue that they basically extrajudicially executed the guy? I think there's a fair argument to be made that uh, Dillinger was uh, executed, uh, perhaps partially inspired because the FBI was embarrassed over what happened at Little Bohemia. But we can talk about all that another day. Well, you know, it, it's just, you know, you see, like basically what we see as the audience, even if you're not familiar with the Dillinger story, um, a, a nerdy looking man walking out in a in a very attractive hat in a straw boater as kevin said wearing a straw boater just like me <laughs> very dashing hat a lovely chapeau <laughs> and then he's like looks out and is like oh no and then gets shot <laughs> and it's like what the fuck uh then you have then you kind of cut through like uh Two other FBI agents dying as they kill Babyface Nelson, and then you know they get uh they they get uh what was the guy who yelled "Don't shoot me, G-Man"? Was that Machine Gun Kelly? Machine Gun Kelly, and that is the weirdest line read in this whole movie. He's like, "Don't shoot me!" Like he just he sounds like he he sounds like he was eating a sandwich before they got him, and then he had to like yell it with his mouth full. It doesn't sound. <laughs> and then they have that thing where they caught the guy he said he was going to kill hoover and then they let hoover arrest him as for a, uh, for a pr stunt it's just like it's just stupid we don't need all these arrests like like this means nothing to we don't we don't 
we like we haven't seen the FBI agents try to find these people or like investigate the cases. It's just like a montage, basically. My favorite was that they they show a shootout with Ma Barker, and like I'm pretty sure that historians agree that she was just a old lady whose sons were in a robbery gang and they maligned her post mortem because they wanted to give an excuse for why they gunned down an old lady. <laughs> so that's nice. Nice to see. Nice to see Hollywood supporting that. <laughs> and then I think there's Pearl Harbor, and then isn't there the South American sequence? Yeah, they talk about what was they disturbingly. Uh, you have Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart has a bunch of voiceovers in this, and I just want to say it reminds me. It reminded me of something that I had to look up. That <laughs> so there's there's a Bugs Bunny short called uh, A Hair Grows in Manhattan where Bugs Bunny starts off in the beginning as a rich guy and he's got a big mansion in like California and he's talking about his roots in Brooklyn, New York. And there's a woman who's doing a voiceover in that narrating all about his like incredible estate in Hollywood. And uh, she's named Lolly. She's supposed to apparently be someone named Luella Parsons, uh, who I I guess was some sort of like lifestyle person who would like talk. She was a gossip columnist. She's a gossip columnist. Luella Parsons. Well, this had a hopper. <laughs> yes, and and but in this, it's like a parody of that. But she's basically like, oh, look at the swimming pool and beautiful lawn and oh wow, Greek columns. And then basically, that's Jimmy Stewart as a voiceover person in this, but just for the FBI. He's like talking about all their wonderful stuff and all the great things they did and like adding pithy comments. And it's just, it's very, it's very odd. It's a very odd. <laughs> It's like suddenly here's Jimmy. <laughs> it's gonna tell us about what the hell's going on. I don't know. Okay, so yeah, now we're in South America. So my understanding was I don't know, like FBI is like the domestic intelligence agency, and they're not like I don't know, like supposed to go across the sea and do things. But I guess shouldn't this have been the OSS? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did, what, what didn't the CIA exist at this point? No. The OSS was the forerunner to the CIA. CIA was created, I believe, in 1947. Is that right? Uh, By the uh, office, office of... Oh, because we're still Services. in World War II. I forgot. Yeah, it was the OSS, uh, Office of Strategic Services or op- something like that. Listen, when I say Amer- uh, United States interference in South America, you know, that, that doesn't give me a big, fuzzy, patriotic feeling inside. <laughs> so kind of odd that that's what the this movie was trying to go with. Since, you know, a lot of that wasn't didn't work so well for people. So in, in I was kind of nodding off during this sequence. I remember how it ends. <laughs> well, a lot of it's just boring stuff about he's like, I was sent down to, you know, rescue these FBI agents who were down there spying on, you know, various governments and like Nazi activity down there. And the first two guys basically are fine. And he just tells them to leave and they leave. The third guy is actually the son of Sam. <laughs> not not the killer, like the he's the son of Sam, his FBI friend from earlier. <laughs> and he was getting all of his life advice from uh, a dog, right? Yeah, the dog was his uh, FBI partner, Harvey. <laughs> kind of an odd choice. <laughs> I think you should kill the governor of Paraguay. <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be out there with a rifle. This is a horrible thing to joke about. I'm so sorry. But basically, he's down there, and he's an FBI agent now, blah, blah, blah. So now Jimmy Stewart's going to go rescue him. He has some transmission center in the jungle, and he's working with 
a, a, a like a local guy like who's just helping him you don't really get much background of them and and that guy helps jimmy stewart hike up the mountains to meet this kid george is his name and um the guy's talking and 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 this is this was the moment where it it clicked for me the guy says something like i'd like to see the ocean one day and i'm like oh he's dead he's gonna die he's gonna sacrifice himself for these two american assholes and that's what happened (laughs) but isn't the sacrifice like really stupid like he he sets off a bomb and he survives the bomb, and then he stands up and waves his arms, which attracts the attention of snipers, and he gets shot to death. Isn't that what happens? Yeah, he, they're fleeing. And Spoiler alert. They're fleeing, and he he uh, blows up a bridge after Jimmy Stewart and George have run to the other side so that he, you know, he's trapped on the other side with the, ba- with the bad guys. And then the two FBI agents are watching helplessly as he gets gunned down. And it was like... All we know about this guy is that he wanted to see the ocean. And then, of course, he falls in a river, and Jimmy Stewart's like, where does that river go? And George is like, I guess to the ocean. And it's like... (sighs) Doesn't add anything. This whole sequence just... It feels incongruent, you know, because this is, you know, I guess maybe... Maybe at the time this is what the FBI did, but it, it sort of feels like this isn't really indicative of what the FBI does now because, it's, you know, it's supposed to remain in the United States for the most part. It just they, they just really overpacked this. Speaking of things that don't add anything, there's one more crime sequence. Something about communists. There's a bunch of men in suits walking around looking at each other. And every once in a while they stop and they call Jimmy Stewart on the phone and then he calls J. Edgar Hoover and there's more men walking around in suits and what what's going on there? Uh, they're communists and the they're commu- suit wearing communists who are at Yankee Stadium in New York. Jimmy Stewart at this point is so advanced that he's not even like in the mission. He's leading it from a telephone. So you get a bunch of hot telephone action with him and other people following men in suits. And it's like at this point they don't even bother to tell you like all you know is that they there's like microfilm in a in a coin that they have to get. It's just a MacGuffin. You don't have any sense of the stakes. You don't know, oh, it's submarine codes. You don't know what the hell it is. It could be it, it could be the guy's vacation photos for all you know. And so like the level of urgency is just at a zero. I mean, if they're telling us if they get this out of the country, you know, we could be nuked in an hour. Okay, then that's something to worry about. But if it's just like random they, they do such a terrible job establishing the stakes and they're kind of gloating about how like you know, oh, you know, he was in a communist group when he was in college. And I think you said something <laughs> about communist groups in the 1950s. Oh, a lot of the communist groups in America in the 1950s were basically, uh, basically the only reason they survived was because they got a lot of financial support from the FBI being, by which I mean undercover FBI agents who joined these groups and paid dues in order to keep an eye on these groups. So it's basically a man from the man who was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton come to life, and and this, you know, the, the there's no, Cold War stuff can be really fun and interesting and 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 exciting. This is just this ain't it. And and yeah, ugh. And then when you kind of consider the FBI's actual history of like infiltrating leftist groups, it just gets more like like oh sh- I'm, I, well, like I'm kind of rooting for the fucking communist who just went to see a baseball game. <laughs> like, like, leave him alone. 
<laughs> we don't even know what he's doing. And then that's it, right? He finally finishes the speech. Uh, he staggers outside where his family's waiting for him in a car. Presumably they've been waiting for him. And they take a, a long masturbatory drive by all the DC monuments during music plays. We're done. We're out of here. Am I skipping anything? No, I think that was pretty much it. I, I, I guess for me, Kevin, like for, I guess for, or rather for you, you know, we talked about how there was maybe a good movie in here. For you, do as much trimming or cutting or mixing that you want to do. Give me a, the good movie version of this film. Cut all of the family stuff. All right, of it. Right off the bat. Nuke it. Pick one or at most two cases. Follow those in depth. Then you've got a picture. Yeah, why not instead of doing specific... like They, they almost tried to follow the real-life crimes too closely. Why not instead of doing that, pick two crimes, fictionalize them so you can kind of twist the facts to whatever you want you know maybe maybe the maybe the technology does solve the bombing case you know maybe the fbi's letter analysis group does contribute in some way instead of just getting mentioned constantly like make it fit the story you want to tell and then i would say the key thing would be um also cut all the training sequences get it get them out of here those rookies have no place in this film i would say you know make Jimmy Stewart's character less Jimmy Stewart, less bumbling, less, oh, shucks, you know, kind of bullshit. I think, I think cutting the family stuff will largely solve that problem. Yeah, I actually agree. He's fine when he's at work. You're like, yeah, he's fine. He's just, he's doing his job. When he gets home, it's when he's a pain in the ass. That's a good, that's a good observation. He's fine at work. I thought, like, I mean, this is, this is cliched as all hell, but, like, what if he's working with the son of his old partner who died and it's kind of like hard for him or like, you know, like you could have a dynamic there where, you know, you could do something with that, but it, as it is, it's just, it's bogged down in every way. I actually think it, it, that if you want to give this movie a chance, the best chance you could give it is to do what Kevin did. Watch it in 20 or 30 minute increments, you know, that way you, you can kind of enjoy what it, there is to enjoy because there is some, there is some interest around the cases. There definitely is some interest around the cases, but um, the family stuff bogs it down. I actually was, I wasn't like, what, in the beginning when the wife was kind of like, you shouldn't work there, I was like, I don't hate this relationship. They seemed to get along when she told him that she was going to, you know, have a baby. Like they had kind of a, a thing there that I dug, but. When we got married, you made me agree to crush all of my dreams. Yeah. I mean, we're used to this kind of thing. <laughs> And you kept talking to me about how great the shrimp was in a, in Indy. And I also often rave about J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> this guy's got some great ideas. <laughs> Kevin, he's dead. He's been dead for years. <laughs> he doesn't talk to you on the phone. <laughs> this is local scam artist. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, there, were, there were some good elements. For me, the real interest in this picture is academic. I think the FBI is a very, very interesting institution. And to me, it's very fun to see how such an in institution wants you to view it. And we, we know that that is how this movie came to be because J. Edgar Hoover was so involved in the process of creating it. So it's basically the FBI putting out a carefully curated Instagram post to the world 
to let everybody know that it's thriving, it's well, it's valid. And I think that's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> they, they want you to take away that, you know, they're not they're not just G-men. They're not just killers or, you know, uh, Hoover's hired guns or, or you know, a bunch of nerds and analyzing handwriting. They're also family men. They have sons. They have wives. They have daughters who suck at giving speeches. And, uh, you know, they have feelings, too. And I, I think there's something very interesting about that. They don't want to look intimidating. They want to look like every everyday American Joes who've sacrificed for this great nation. And they worry about things like tissue paper and Christmas tree lights. They have wives who don't understand them. Gosh, I can relate with that. Nagging bitch wives. <laughs> the Kevin Greenlee story. No, I... I, I so from, a, from an academic, as somebody who's interested in, like, American history and, and like, you know, intelligence work and the FBI in general, I think there's there's something – it held my interest for sure, even though I was baffled by so many of the storytelling decisions. What's your final uh, take on this thing? Oh, and I'll also say, uh, for those of you who've watched our previous episode uh, – <laughs> The ending definitely gives Sherlock Holmes goes to Washington vibes, just with <laughs> way better cinematography. Here's the Lincoln Memorial and the George Washington Memorial. <laughs> At least there was no narration in Churchill quotes. I would say my five-star final take is that this movie uh, may have been as endless as J. Edgar Hoover's tenure at the Bureau. But its saccharineness and just general cheese make for an occasionally interesting viewing. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore to underscore me underscore. And at Mystery to Me Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at Mystery to Me Podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T O. Thanks, Thanks so, so much, much for, for listening. listening.